Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I paid the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! Winding down the football season, or at least it feels that way, one more game left, and it's the bowl game that everyone's been waiting for. Basketball, a lot to talk about there. Syracuse is, I don't know the exact math, but I think it's a little over the qu- a quarter of the way through, barring any uh, tournament uh, play. We got football, we got basketball, and this is Fizz 5 covering it all, five of the hottest topics over the past week with Carter Bainbridge. I'm Cameron Isaire. See, one thing I love about Syracuse, Carter, they always keep us on the edge of our seats, and that's been the the case this past week, right? Right, and for better or for worse, I think that statement is true because we <laughs> we were all ready to go for this show, and we got some new developments over the last 48 hours or so that really changed the calculus not just for us, but for Syracuse football in particular as well. So we'll, we'll get into that. We'll see how everything comes to fruition in the next couple of weeks. And I would say in the next three weeks when that news that we're about to break down in topic number one uh, actually comes into effect. So without further ado, let's head to topic number one. Number one. Okay, topic number one time. It's the news that broke over the last 48 hours or so of this being recorded Syracuse football. I mean, you start six and zero. You lose five in a row. You beat Boston College. Everything looks up, right? All the players are a little more energized than they were during that five-game losing streak. And then you lose everyone. You lose your offensive coordinator. You lose your defensive coordinator. Tony White off to Nebraska. Now the D coordinator for the newly minted Nebraska head coach, Matt Rule, former Baylor head coach, former Carolina Panther head coach. And then uh, Robert and I, out of nowhere, first year with the program, and he just up and leaves to another ACC school in NC State. Carter, I mean, first off, uh, first reactions to this happening, and second, how does this affect Syracuse, not just in the pinstripe bowl, but moving forward? Jeez, yeah, this was a tough day for Syracuse football to lose both your coordinators in the span of six hours, I think it was, yesterday evening, a team that had built itself up this year to rare heights under Dino Babers and a lion's share of the credit has gone to these two assistants, Tony White, the defensive coordinator, now former DC for Syracuse, was the quote unquote longer tenured guy compared to Robert and I, who was new this year after he came over from Virginia. My first reaction to this was surprise, but it wasn't like an absolute flooring shock surprise because you got the feeling in your gut that because both those guys were so successful that they were probably bound to go somewhere else. And that is kind of an indictment on Syracuse's program, but it's also just about what SU's standing is in the football world. Um, You know, there were questions during the regular season directed towards Dino Babers about, is Tony White thinking about the Arizona state job once Herm Edwards got fired? I mean, I remember that and, Babers, of course, kind of refused to answer it and just kind of smiled through it and didn't really give anything else. But people eventually dropped it, although that was the first inkling you got of this guy's doing well enough to where, you know, other teams could be looking at him and 
if Syracuse can't really keep him one way or another, whether that's contractually or offer him something that he wants, something to entice him to stay here, that he might have been bound to leave. I, I thought Robert and I was the bigger surprise. I, I didn't expect him to be a one and done at Syracuse, but he's also the one that makes a little bit more sense when you contextualize it because he has so much family down in North Carolina. I think he even has ties, familial ties to NC State's program, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, that at first, that was the more surprising one for me, and I was over White, but they both sting. I mean, this is a team this year that broke through from a lot of doldrums, thanks to those guys. I think that Babers in years past was held back and maybe unfairly blamed because some of his coordinators were just incapable. Sterling Gilbert comes to mind as a guy who was just strictly incompetent. And he had a couple defensive coordinators a couple years ago who just couldn't really do anything with the pieces they had. But Tony White and Robert and I had it figured out. These guys were a breath of fresh air in a program that has a lot of difficulty with a lot of different things. I mean, you look back at the defense cam when we first came to campus, we're senior students, not to date ourselves, but think back to the defense on that 2019 Syracuse team. That defense got people fired. It was the fourth worst defense in the ACC in a year of a lot of bad defenses in the ACC, namely like Duke back in back in those days. You think of the A.J. Dillon game when B.C. ran for like 500 yards in the dome. <laughs> I wasn't present for that game, but it still lives in infamy for anybody who was there for like the benchmark for what, what the worst Syracuse defensive performance we all saw was. So that that's a bad one. And, and you see how Tony White had formed a relationship with these players because you saw guys react like Caleb Okachukwu, Marlo Wax, Deuce Chestnut, the leaders of the defense, all upset when it was announced yesterday that he was leaving to take the Nebraska job, not a head coaching job, just being defensive coordinator with the Huskers. You figure Nick Monroe, the passing game coordinator, is the trendy pick to be next in line to take defensive coordinator duties, but that's a big change you know, this is a, a beloved coach in white and a guy who molded this defense from nothing to something to one of the ACC's best this year. And now he's gone. I, I can't say I blame the players if they don't perform like we're used to in this bowl game coming up in a few weeks. That's going to be your X factor. How does this defense look under new coaching against a Minnesota team that presents a big challenge? And, and the final thing I'll say about this with, with an eye and white headed out the door both guys are going to greener pastures and you know, that's, that's a sad reality for Syracuse football, Nebraska, even as a big 10 joke averages 90,000 fans a game. NC state averages almost 80,000 a game. So even if Tony white was paid well on this staff and relative to the other assistants, he was, he's going to somewhere better where He's going to be appreciated, and his contract details are going to be public, which they weren't here. Syracuse's standing as a program is a graduating school and a stepping stone to something better. It's Syracuse University in more ways than one. It's university for the coaches, too. Stay a couple years and head on to somewhere to be a real professional. Whether that's Dino's fault or whether that's John Wildhack's fault is up for debate. I, I kind of lean more that being on Wildhack and something that he has to pay a little more attention to. That is another conversation, but that's the crux of this, is that both guys saw something better, 
and they took it. And there's nothing you can do as a Syracuse fan except tip your hats for what these guys did because they did a lot this year. But, you know, coming up, there might be some tougher roads to hoe in, in the next couple years without them. Well, let's be honest. The word indictment is the correct word in this in this sentiment. This is an indictment on Syracuse football. These two coaches didn't leave for head coaching jobs. They left for coordinating jobs at other schools. And for Robert and I, you go five years at Virginia and you're coaching one of the best uh, throwing offenses in the nation pretty much every single year. And when I say in the nation, they, they just like in terms of air raid and the efficiency and and the the quarterbacks that ran through that Virginia program, it went from nothing to something. Syracuse was becoming something. And it's an indictment on the program that Robert and I doesn't want to continue that something into something greater. That's why Ohio State's so good. That's why Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee at this point. Remember when Georgia was eh in the SEC? And now all of a sudden, you know, with Stetson Bennett at the good old age of 25, this Georgia team is something better under Kirby Smart. Syracuse can't keep anyone other than Dino Babers. It's an indictment on the program. If Tony Wright took a head coaching job, I'd get it, right? He's coached a great defense over the past couple of years. Syracuse football has been a joke over the past couple of years. Tony White has been the one person or, or just the one figure for Syracuse football, and especially on the defensive side, that you've looked at and said, okay, this guy's the real deal. He has helped those players that have gone on to the NFL develop. You talk about uh, Kingsley Jonathan, Josh Black, Afatu Melanfonwu, Andre Sisko. He's created a Garrett Williams, a Deuce Chestnut, a Michael Jones, and molded them into the players that they are. The fact that Tony White left isn't the indictment. There's an indictment on the fact that he left for another defensive coordinating job. He's good enough to be a head coach in college football, and instead he leaves for a Big Ten program that has been a non-factor over what seems like forever because other teams have just leveled up, just as the ACC has been. Syracuse falling behind as other teams are leveling up. On the Robert and I front, this makes no sense. How can you not keep your offensive coordinator for more than a year after he leads you to the best start to a season since 1987 and one of the best seasons in the early going that you've ever seen offensively? And I get it. The teams that Syracuse played early on, you can talk about the offense and compliment them time and time again. But it wasn't like this offense could beat Alabama because you get into ACC play and they were getting dogged by Clemson in the second half. Same with Notre Dame early on in that game with a guy in Drew Pine who's transferring. So I just look at this and say it's an indictment on the program. And we, we all know Syracuse isn't a football school, but this just proves it time and time again. Uh, the Robert and I think hurts, but the fact that uh, Syracuse went with hiring Jason Beck overall. I, I think that is great for Syracuse. Going back to Tony White, I mean, come on. This is a guy that entered a Syracuse program that was 115th nationally in defense, and two years later he made them top 20 in the in the nation in defense uh, play. So uh, it was ridiculous. It's an indictment on the program. That's really all I have to say. And if my question is, if you're John Wildhack, why are you not trying way harder to make sure these guys stay? I mean, who knows? Who knows what their motivation was for leaving? But if you're John Wildhack, you cannot let money be a reason why. I'm sorry, but you can't. Like, I, I agree. 
I mean, the, the, I, you know I, what? The the pandemic empty seats. It's a couple of years ago now. You know, no matter how many you know boost the Qs fundraisers you want to do and try and you know pick the pockets of students, you surely have the coin to pay coordinators who just took your program to your fifth bowl in the last eighteen years. And as far as we know, these conversations were not had. There's no transparency surrounding what's going on with the coordinators for this program, but. That's a problem. I really I turn the microscope on wild hack a little bit for this because you should be trying way harder and throwing the kitchen sink at these guys. You give them turn, something, give them something new to let them on, know that they're valued. Do not turn on Dino Babers, too. I understand it's not his decision at the end of the day, but the fact that he's been here for seven years and in his seventh year. He leads a team to 6-0. and They fumble down the stretch and you lose both of your coordinators. I also say, hey, Dino Babers, these should be your guys. Why do you think a program like what the Patriots held up for so long? Josh McDaniels Daniels wanted to stay with Bill Belichick. That's not an indictment on the Patriots at all. When McDaniels left, okay, you're good enough to leave and take a head coaching job. How can Dino Babers not even sustain a group for one season? Robert and I said, nope, I'm out of here going to NC State. And of course, there could be a plethora of reasons. You can blame John Wildhack all you want, but I need a little more from Dino Babers here, a little more clarity to why he couldn't keep his guys in-house after a good season. Yeah, and Dino Babers in seven years has had what seems like 12 different coordinators for both sides of the ball. It seems like every year there's like more than one of them for different sides of the ball. It's been a couple interim guys. You know, there's a lot of guys coming in and out. So that's another curiosity, something to think about as we move on. I, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I will bold that word indictment. It's an indictment on the program and two coaches that won't be there in the pinstripe bowl. We're going to head to topic number two. We'll, we'll talk about that bowl and preview it, it a little bit as we're about two, three weeks out. So let's head to topic number two. Number two. Topic number two, pinstripe bowl preview. Syracuse 2-0 and in pinstripe bowls, and uh, we get it. There'll probably be a couple more Fizz Fives before the actual bowl game. But let's preview it because it's the talk of the town if you don't want to talk basketball and if you want to hone in on football. The pinstripe bowl, Syracuse, Minnesota, uh, second time in the last decade, these two teams are meeting in a bowl game. Back in 2013, SU beat Minnesota in the Texas Bowl. But this one, it seems like it has a little more to it because Syracuse could win its first bowl game in, in four years. So, Carter, a little bowl game preview. What do you got for me? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, it's a it's a little bit of a shame that the thunder for this game has been taken away a little bit thanks to the the sledgehammer that hit SU's coaching staff over the past 24 hours because there's still a game to be played. That's something that hasn't been the case the last three seasons. So SU's first bowl appearance since 2018, you have a Minnesota team that when you take a little bit of a closer look, even if Syracuse had Robert and I and Tony White going into this game on the sideline, this is a Minnesota team that's a tough draw. For SU, this is not only a good Minnesota team, but it matches up with Syracuse in a good way for Minnesota, in a bad way if you're Syracuse. This is a this is a a difficult matchup for the Orange because Minnesota is your quintessential Big Ten team, but without the funny ineptitude like Iowa or Wisconsin, the Golden Gophers they can't really pass the ball. That's kind of their one weakness, but. They run the ball like you would not believe. Crazy. Mohamed Ibrahim is the running back. 
and he's essentially 2021 Sean Tucker. He, he's, yeah, maybe he's better. last year, maybe Sean Tucker. Better. Yeah, he's Sean Tucker with more power, maybe. 1,600 yards, 19 touchdowns for this guy. He set a school record for 100-yard games this year with 10. Remarkably similar season to what Tucker did a year ago, and he's playing behind a bigger offensive line than Tucker did. He's a very, very talented back, and that is a bad dude to go up against for SU's run defense that was so bad down the stretch that it lost this team games almost single-handedly. SU allowed 200 or more yards four times over its final six games and, of course, went on that five-game losing streak before beating BC in the finale. That run defense was a big reason why the Orange started losing games down the stretch. So, for me, this is a tough draw for Syracuse. It's an unlucky one because Minnesota plays exactly the type of ball that Syracuse doesn't like to go up against, and that's not even talking about Minnesota's defense. Because this defense for the Golden Gophers is, talking about Tony White earlier, this unit is one of the ones that was ranked ahead of his. Oh, 13 points a game allowed, fourth in the nation in scoring defense. So not just one of the best in the Big Ten, this is one of the best defenses in the country. This is a Minnesota team that doesn't have to get a lot on offense, but it has to just get enough and just constrict you on the defensive side SU look kind of shaky down the stretch on offense. I, I think this is a intimidating team to go up against if you're SU in this bowl. So I will say a couple weeks ago on Fizz 5, Carter, my prediction was Syracuse, Maryland in the pinstripe bowl. So I got one of two right. You want to bring out your crystal ball, you can check out our crystal ball articles on theorangefizz.com. But that's beside the point. I, I want to bring out my crystal ball and say that I predict, predicted the, the pinstripe bowl correctly. Hey, I'll take that. I'll take all the... Uh, the accolades that come with that prediction. I mean, if you're Syracuse, you wished it was Maryland because this Minnesota team is no joke. Uh, you take any Big Ten team and it's really no joke, a hard-nosed defense. That's what they're known for, ground and pound, live in the trenches, a lot like how Notre Dame plays. I mean, Notre Dame really doesn't have a passing offense either so other than, you know, Michael Mayer at, at tight end. So that's how the Big Ten is really run uh, from the middle of the pack down. And Minnesota, I mean, many forget that they finished eight and four because it's a team that started the season so poorly. They won four out of their last five games against really the the bottom feeders of the Big Ten. But uh, uh, Carter, I think both you and I know that the bottom feeders of the Big Ten would whoop up on a lot of teams in the ACC. And you still have to win the games. Yeah, and they were they were close. It's not like Minnesota was running away with games. They were close, but again, hard nosed players on Minnesota. Uh, this is this is not going to be a fun game for Syracuse. They've lost four of their last five or five of their last six, and, and it wasn't particularly close in a lot of those. I'm curious to see with the coordinators going elsewhere and with how many people are announcing, okay, declaring for the draft, not playing in the bowl game, or choosing to for not playing in the bowl game. Not trying to predict if any Syracuse players will do that, but Sean Tucker's eligible for the draft and Michael Jones is eligible, eligible for the draft. So those two, if they do play, then it gives Syracuse a separate presence against Minnesota because you have a, a guy in Michael Jones that has that Minnesota identity to him where he is hard-nosed on the defensive end. Sean Tucker needs to have one of the best games of his career if Syracuse has a chance because SU has turned into Minnesota passing the ball. Like, let's be honest, Minnesota cannot pass the ball to save their lives. Syracuse has been a lot of the same. 
Now, where I struggle is less about um, Ibrahim and less about Minnesota having a great defense. Can Syracuse uh, keep the flags out of the out of the officials' pockets? I, I mean, this is the most penalized team in the country, while Minnesota is one of the least penalized teams in the country. And if it wasn't for 26 straight points in the fourth quarter and Syracuse picking a little Damian Alford luck out of the air, SU doesn't beat Boston College and penalties again come back to bite them. It's not like Syracuse's offense has changed that much from the first six games to the final six games, but big plays have been mitigated by penalties. And all of a sudden you're a Syracuse team that is staring an official right in the face after every single play, hoping he doesn't throw his yellow, he or she doesn't throw uh, their yellow flag. So I think it comes down to penalties. Uh, It's going to be a ground and pound game for Minnesota. And if Syracuse can find some success through the air, that's the only way that SU gets it done. Because Carter, you know, Minnesota, the Golden Gophers are going to key in on Sean Tucker. So that's going to be gone. So if Garrett Schrader doesn't have a great game or Sean Tucker doesn't have the best game of his career, uh, it's going to be a long, long, long bowl game and a long drive back to central New York. So... We'll see what happens. That game's in about three weeks, December 29th at 2 p.m., Syracuse in Minnesota. Um, hopefully, we'll have someone down there for Orange Fizz. If we don't, we'll still report the game and, and live tweet it, all that jazz, and still have a lot of articles out about it. Uh, if you have uh, no plans for New Year's, my guess is uh, our, hard, our hardworking staff on the orangefizz.com will continue to write articles about the bowl game, no matter the result, even heading into the new year. So we'll see what happens with the football team. Now let's head to topic three and we're keeping it seasonal. Let's focus on a little more basketball. Number three. Topic number three, Syracuse men's basketball. Enough with the football talk because, you know, that that's been the news of the last 24, 48 hours and will be the news in the next three weeks or so. Well, this basketball team, right, five and four, just took down Oakland. They have a big game with Georgetown tomorrow. We're recording this on, on the Friday. So, I, I mean, that that's one of the biggest rivalries for Syracuse, even though Georgetown has uh, gone down the gutter. But you remember last year when G-Town beat Syracuse in an embarrassing game for the Orange. But instead of focusing on Georgetown for topic number three, let's go micro on the team. Because I had this talk with someone earlier, Carter, and I was just curious to you know know what you thought. And I think this is a big talking point. Jesse Edwards is having one of the best nine game stretches of his career after having an unbelievable uh, season last year before uh, going down with injury. Judah Mintz is playing quite the role as well. You can even throw Joe Girard in there. So Carter, out of those three, Joe Girard, Judah Mintz, Jesse Edwards, which is the most important in your mind? Well, for me, by far, it's Jesse Edwards. I, I don't have to think very hard about that, to be honest with you, because it, we're, we're talking about a Syracuse team that showed what it was like without Jesse last year and that still has shooters even if one guy is off on the team. That's that's your main statement. I'll zero in a little bit on this more tightly so let's say Judah Mintz goes down for any length of time. SU can just put Joe Girard back at point guard if it wants to because he's been there for three years. Maybe it would take him a game or two to adjust, but I'm sure he could do it. And still, you could still have a ton of experience at that position. You'd still have one half of your backcourt as an experienced player. And you could also have him stay at the two if you really wanted to and have maybe Quadir Copeland 
play the one. You know, he's a guard. If you if you chose to do that, if you wanted to get a little exotic, that's so ambitious. That's right. Very exotic. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yes, right. That's that's your uh, that's your option Z. <laughs> but obviously, you know, obviously, it goes without saying that Judah Mintz would be a loss. He's your starting point guard. He is the most well-adjusted freshman to this point in the year because he's doing the most, he's playing the most, trusted the most at a position where you need trust. But if Jesse Edwards goes down, you saw what happened last year when that did happen. The Feb- the February injury that he had, if I remember correctly, it was to his wrist. Um, SU went three and six without him down the stretch against some beatable teams, I will add. You know, he's been a rebounding machine this season. You alluded to that earlier. His his nine-game start has been phenomenal. And I don't at all trust the backups behind him, at least not to start. Munir Hima is good in bursts, but he's a foul machine. And I just, he's not starter quality. And then beyond him, you have John Bola Jacques and Peter Carey. Neither of them are options you want starting games playing extended minutes. Edwards can score. He can block shots. He's a rebounding fiend. And he's the most critical part of this team as it's constructed right now. Because if a guard goes down, you've seen what happens in a game where one of them is off. It doesn't mean they're going to play well. But I think without Jesse Edwards, you don't win games. You know, you don't contend. You don't compete. I think that's the difference between those positions. To play devil's advocate, uh, and I, I want to talk a little more about Joe than Judah. Uh, if you Joe doesn't have a good game and, and during that, what, four-game stretch was it? where after he scored 31 against Richmond, he had nine points combined against St. John's and Bryant, and then put up a goose egg for only the second time in his career against Illinois. So it was a three-game stretch in which he shot two of 25 from the field and one of 13 from distance. When Joe didn't have good games, you lose to St. John's in overtime, right? You lose to Bryant by one. Uh, yes, was the Illinois game ugly? Yeah, but it's not like anyone had a good game. Jesse had nine points. And I think that speaks to more about the importance of Jesse Edwards. He does so much more. If Joe doesn't have a good shooting game, then he's good for nothing. No offense to JG3. If Jesse doesn't have a good rebounding game, well, at least he could have a, a scoring output that could put smiles on, on Syracuse fans' faces. At least he can play on the defensive end and and get blocks and, and at least contest shots. He can do more on both ends of the floor. If Judah, if Joe, if they can't score, you focus less on their defense. You don't have 6-11 in the paint. All of a sudden, Syracuse is a non-factor in the conference. I think Jesse makes them a factor in the conference. He's not only a senior, but he can block shots with the best of them. He knows how to utilize his body inside. His pivot foot is unbelievable off the pick and roll, off moves on the low block. He is a player... That is, I would say, with how the team is constructed right now, more integral than Buddy Beheim was to the team last year. It might be a hot take to many, but without Jesse Edwards, you're relying on a small lineup or Munir Himar Jambolajak to play your five. Have you noticed when Jambolajak is in, Jesse Edwards is in too. I mean, Edwards is your true five, and if he's not there, you're right. We saw what happened last year with the wrist injury. I think he provides a lot more to the team. And we haven't seen Jesse play a bad game. Had nine points against Illinois. That wasn't great. But he hasn't really played a, a an enormously bad game where you look at him and say, oh, gosh. I think we've done that three or four times this season with Joe. 
So why many would say, okay, JG3 or Judah, those are the most important players over Jesse Edwards, because you see, they have bad games, Syracuse loses. That's why they're off to a bad start. How could you say Jesse's the most important when he's having the best nine-game stretch of his career and Syracuse is five and four? We haven't seen Jesse play a bad game. So you're automatically relying, you're intrinsically saying Jesse needs to have a good game, or he's going to. I mean, there, there's no other op- there's no other option. Jesse is playing a good game. It's like Buddy Beheim last year. No one was worried about Buddy until the one or two games he played a poor game, and now it's like, oh, press the panic button. With Joe, he's inconsistent. With Judah, I mean, a lot of the times if his ball handling is good, he doesn't need to be scoring with the best of them. Jesse needs to have a good game, and I think everyone will realize that once Jesse has a bad game, like a very, very bad game like two points in 20 minutes and five fouls, right? So Jesse Edwards, I would agree with you, is the most important player on this team. And I think he'll be the most important player come Georgetown tomorrow. And that's where we're heading for topic number four. Number four. Topic number four, Georgetown-Syracuse, one of the most storied rivalries these teams have played over 90 times, and it was always exciting in the Big East days. Not as much during ACC time, but hey, It's still Georgetown. It's still Syracuse. It's in the Dome this year, which is exciting for fans after Syracuse lost at Georgetown last season. So, Carter, for a Georgetown team that's at 500 right now and a Syracuse team that's struggling and only one game above 500, what are you expecting to go down in the Dome tomorrow? Well, first, there will be emotion in this game. I don't think it makes much difference that SU is – Five and four, and and Georgetown is an improved five and five this year. Right. We can't forget that. Hoyas have almost won as many games already this year as they did all of last year. <laughs> uh, Benny Williams said as much right this week that he thinks SU Georgetown is the number two rivalry in college basketball, behind only Duke UNC. And you know I I would agree with that. You know it's seen better days, but there's still a, a pretty rich history there, and, and it still gets heated when they do play, but. On a micro level for this game, I'll tell you what I do expect out of this one. These are two of the worst teams in the nation in perimeter defense. I think there's your X factor for this game. SU is 355th in opponent three-pointers made per game. Georgetown's 347th. Nice. There are, there are 363 teams in Division One, so both these squads are bottom 15 in that category. They're not very good at defending the three, but that works to SU's advantage because the Hoyas just don't shoot from outside. They certainly don't do it very well when they try. They've taken the seventh most two-pointers in the nation. This is a team that is going to try to beat you in the paint and has done so in the five games that it's won against the teams it's played. Meanwhile, SU has guys who can hit from deep. Gerard, if he's on, Chris Bell, Sometimes even Justin Taylor, when he's like hot, you know, he's streaky when he gets in, doesn't play a ton of minutes, but these guys have the capacity, right? They all have good shots. And I think Syracuse uses its offensive firepower to its advantage against a Georgetown team. That's not great defensively. And I think it's first to 60. It's going to take it in the dome between these two. I like that. Uh, What you have to watch out for is offensively with Georgetown. Yes. They don't have world beaters, um, you know, that, that are going to outshine uh, the big names in the ACC, even though I get they're in the Big East. But to, to focus on 
ACC competition because that's what Syracuse is priming up to play. Uh, Georgetown doesn't have a lot of players that you're looking at and saying, okay, these should test Syracuse's defense. Because if you're saying that, you got to worry come conference play. But they have a players that can score in bunches. Primo Spears, uh, Brandon Murray both score over 16 points per game. Now, they're both underclassmen, so streaky are the two of them. A guy in Brandon Murray, who's 6'5", he's 225. That's what you have to worry about, the size on this team. Kudus Wahab, 6'11", 245. I think it's one of the coolest names in the country. I remember <laughs> saying that last year. They they have a lot of really good names on that team. Q-U-D-U-S? I mean, come on, sign me up. But like I just said, 6'11", 245 down low. Brandon Murray, one of its top scores, 6'5", 225. Uh, he just had a, a couple monster games. He scored double figures in five straight. Primo Spears, another great name. He's their 6'3", 185 guy, so a lot like a Judah Mintz or a Joe Girard. I'd compare him more to a Judah Mintz, but more a volume scorer uh, from the inside. I think Judah likes to facilitate a little more, while Primo Spears has scored in double figures in pretty much every game this season and he doesn't really shoot threes so it'll be a one-on-one battle between those two I'm curious to see if the size advantage for Georgetown takes its toll in the second half that's what happened last year remember when Syracuse lost to Villanova at the end and it was one of those like ah top 10 team in the country that would have been a huge win Then you go and play Georgetown and you lose it huge in that second half. You lose by four, but you got outscored by a boatload in that second half. Like, ah, you should have had it. I think Syracuse can be worn down by size. Good thing is SU has more depth than, than it had last season. Jesse Edwards, he's put on a little muscle. But 245 can still muscle Jesse Edwards out of the way. You go back to that Colgate game. I mean, the Red Raiders are the Raiders now. It's not Red Raiders. A lot of the teams have removed their colors. The Raiders now, or the Raiders a couple weeks ago, they dominated the orange inside because they had two guys at 6'11". That both weighed over 220-230. So when Jesse Edwards has to contend with an athletic big that's also just huge in stature and size... I think that mitigates his play down low, especially if he picks up an early foul. That's what hurt him in the Oakland game early on before SU went on that 20-0 run is the fact that he picked up an early foul. And I was tweeting about it at Orange Fizz on Twitter, and we've written about it on theorangefizz.com. But when Jesse Edwards picks up a foul, he's not as aggressive because now he's more cautious. He realizes his importance. He can't be as aggressive as he wants to be. So one thing with Georgetown, as you mentioned, is they're going to open up three-point shots for Syracuse. Uh, SU is shooting under 30% as a team from three-point range this season. Jim Beheim, after most games, says we have to we have to you know pass the ball inside because we can't shoot to save our lives. Syracuse has capable shooters. Georgetown has capable bigs. Now, how will that contend with each other come Saturday? I mean, I think that Syracuse has the advantage of playing at home. But then again, they had the same with Colgate and the offense sputter. So it's all about capabilities. If Jesse Edwards stays in the game and Joe Girard makes over four threes, in which he did for five of the nine games this season, I think Syracuse is fine. But then again, I think it's all about capabilities, and there's too many question marks around this team to make a determination right now. So that's where I stand with Georgetown against Syracuse. It'll be a great game, a one o'clock tip, so a little matinee basketball. Pretty sure it's on ABC as well, which is really cool. 
but you'd expect that with Georgetown Syracuse. Now we're going to pull it back out. Talk Syracuse as a whole nine games in five and four are the orange. Have we learned anything about them? That's for topic number five. Number five. Topic number five. Wrapping things up here on Fizz 5, make sure you check out our, our, our articles, our articles. It's a tough one to say. It's like trying to predict Georgetown, Syracuse. On theorangefizz.com, Carter Bainbridge is with me. I'm Cameron Ezere. Nine games into the season, I think, what, four or five games into the season, everyone was already having doubts about Syracuse. You double that, and now everyone doesn't really know, right? You you whoop up on Oakland. That didn't really teach you anything. The Notre Dame win taught you stuff. Uh, what have you learned from this team, Carter, throughout the first nine games? That there's not a lot really concrete that we can tell. I think the cement is still drying for this squad, but this is a young team with with flaws, noticeable flaws that can be worked on, but this is still a squad with a questionable track record and a ceiling I think if if everything goes right down the stretch of being maybe a double digit seed in the tournament we're talking 11 wow. 11 12 maybe in the NCAA tournament and maybe not a strong one at that but I think if if a lot of things break right for this squad it, it could do that that's a big conditional ceiling and, and some things need to happen but I think it's possible for SU to sneak it in and you know the orange take advantage of a not so tough looking ACC schedule. That's thing number one, because what do you mean? Not so, what do you mean? Not so tough? Cause I, I disagree with that. SU doesn't have to take road trips to some of the better teams. In the okay, conference. It doesn't I, have, doesn't have to go to Duke. Doesn't have to go to UNC, et cetera. Right. But I still think with the, you know, not so concrete determination that you just made that that then makes it a tough ACC schedule. It's not like those teams won't hunker down. I know that Louisville hasn't won a game. Boston College <laughs> is not that good. But Virginia, Virginia Tech, even though they didn't play that well to the start of last season, they picked it up. And then you got Notre Dame again. I don't think if Notre Dame shoots that poorly at home, uh, that Syracuse picks up that win. So, I, I mean, I don't know. That that I have a little bit of a, a condition with and not so tough. I still think it's tough. <laughs> well, the ACC is a good basketball conference, so I guess it's re- relative to everything else, right? ACC, even when it doesn't look as bad, and even when you save yourself some hard road trips, it probably is still difficult. But SU does get a few breaks in there. And uh, if the Orange can take advantage of the games they should win, right, let's say against the Louisvilles and the Boston Colleges of the world, they keep Jesse Edwards healthy and active, they get – actual consistent production from a freshman not named Judah Mintz. Um, You know, there's a battle at the three. This team desperately needs more from Benny Williams. He either needs to play better or just sit once and for all because he's driving everyone crazy. I just get a gut feeling, though, that something with this team is bound to click. And I look at the Notre Dame game as evidence for a tough road trip, one that SU could have easily just laid down for and lost focus after a really bad loss at Illinois. Notre Dame helped them out with that by not playing very well, but SU still had to win the game, still had to make enough baskets to to put itself in position to steal that game by a point. So here's, here's what I think is that SU is going to show some more things and has to do it by January 7th okay. for it to show that it can reach the point that I think it can reach. And I'll tell you why I circle that date for a reason. I can't, I think you know why 
I said SU has a questionable track record because its results have been all over the place. You lose to Colgate, you get torched by them at home, outlasted by Bryant, destroyed by Illinois. The wins aren't super impressive. I mean, SU just played one of the shortest teams in the country in Oakland by height, average height on the team. Oakland is a small team. And boy, Jesse Edwards looked like he had no trouble with that. Um, But SU has six more games between now and January 7th. And on that day, the 7th, it goes and plays UVA in Charlottesville. But those six games in between now and then are Georgetown, Monmouth, Cornell, Pitt, BC, and Louisville. The absolute clown show that is Louisville this year. The only road game out of those six is to the KFC Yum Center against the Cardinals. So you have five home games and five that looked pretty easy. You know, SU's five and four right now. It should be 11 and four by the time it plays Virginia. And if it is, I think that'll teach us far more than what we've seen in the first nine. Yeah, I don't know. I disagree. I, I I agree with you that Syracuse needs to have a good six game stretch. Like you got to win at least five of those, and and preferably all six to have any sort of semblance of a you know a, of a tournament ready basketball team come March. Uh, but no, I, I disagree with you. I, I think that Syracuse has taught us that their inability and ineptitude at times weighs out and trumps their abilities. And what I mean by that is just too much inconsistent play. There hasn't been one game where you look at everyone and you say, okay, there's three players, three or four players that you liked how they played, not just on the stat sheet, but on both ends of the ball. Didn't learn anything in that Lehigh game because you give 72 points to Lehigh against Colgate. You learn so much about what Syracuse can't do on the defensive end and what happens if the offense isn't playing well against Northeastern you learn nothing because Northeastern's very bad at the game of basketball against Richmond you learn that Joe Girard can have a good game Jesse Edwards can have a good game and Syracuse can still fumble the bag down the stretch and make it an overtime worthy game against St. John's all that I learned is that this team doesn't have enough intensity to take on a Big East foe like St. John's who who who's uh hard nose to the core and I know I bring up that hard nose point because it's a lot of underclassmen on this team and I, I just don't think they have the fight yet they don't understand the fight in college basketball against Bryant I mean what in the world you learn that maybe you know what what you learn that Judah Mintz at times he's a freshman like he can be talented but he's still a freshman he can have moments you learn that Joe Girard can consistently have back-to-back bad games you learn that Jesse Edwards is the star of this team great that helps for a Syracuse team in which its philosophy has been shooting the three they can't shoot the three and now they're utilizing the inside but all Chris Bell wants to do is shoot all Justin Taylor wants to do is shoot All Benny Williams wants to do is shoot a mid-range jumper. So I'm confused at this point to where Syracuse's identity is or what it can be come conference play Uh, against Notre Dame. I mean, Illinois, I'm going to skip over it because you didn't learn anything against Illinois. You learned how, how, how one team, the, the Lego pieces can separate so fast against Notre Dame. I'll be honest with you. When Notre Dame had a drought of two to three minutes at the end of that game before scoring on the and one and taking the lead due to Joe's really bad decision to try to contest a shot from the back of Marcus Hammond, Syracuse didn't score for those three minutes either. So they still held a lead, but you'll learn how inept Syracuse is at pulling away. And then against Oakland, you'll learn that Syracuse needs 15 minutes to find its identity. So I'll be honest with you, Carter. I really haven't learned much about this team through nine games. 
all I've really learned is that the inconsistencies have outweighed the ability and the capability of this team to actually play at a high level. I've just learned too much about what this team can't do rather than learning what this team can do, if that makes sense. It does. Good points there. You know, I think I'm I'm on the optimistic side. Maybe it's been going on too long where I still expect things to come out of these players that I'm just kind of waiting to see. Wait, nine games or almost a quarter of the way through the season. I still have some belief that they can put together that consistency that you're talking about, because I, I would be inclined to agree with that a little bit, having, you know, thought about it a little more and listened to your answer because it is a problem for them, right? You kind of know what the, what these players have been doing. The, the frustrating part over these nine games have been, you kind of know what each player is going to do. And then they go out and they do it and they don't do anything different, Yep. which, which is the, the troubling part. You, you're kind of waiting for someone to surprise you with something you figure it'll happen at some point, but I'm just not quite sure when. So ask me again after a couple more games and maybe I'll have a much different answer than I do now. I think this might be the last hurrah for my <laughs> brand of positivity surrounding this team. Well, Carter, good luck for you and or it's good for you and the rest of our audience that uh, we'll be back on Fizz 5 in a couple of weeks. So that's something to look forward to. You can uh, see if Carter's answer has changed uh, and and we'll see if Syracuse football can win a football game. And, you know, in, in the months of November and December, after winning one over the last, what, three seasons, a lot to come with Syracuse and the storylines. They just continue to build. This has been Fizz 5 with Carter Bainbridge. I'm Cameron Ezer. Make sure to continue listening to all our Fizz 5s. Give us a follow on Twitter at Orange Fizz. And again, read all our articles on theorangefizz.com. If you don't like to hear us talk, you can use your, use your eyeballs instead and read all of our articles. Got a lot to talk about with recruiting both basketball and football. We got a lot to talk about with basketball uh, on the inconsistencies of Chris Bell and should Justin Taylor start? I'm about to put that article out. So a lot to talk about, but we're going to wrap things up here on Fizz 5. For Carter, I'm Cam, and we will catch you next time. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production.